By the time we get to the 12th chapter of Acts, the church has had some extraordinary days, days of triumph and victory. It's grown by thousands. It has moved, as Jesus called it to, from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria. Not only have Samaritans joined the church, but also an Ethiopian a Gentile, the oppressor, Cornelius, has joined the church. Even the persecutor of the church, Saul, has now become Paul the Apostle. But as Luke continues to tell the story of the church, he interweaves its wonderful, exciting days with the dark days, the days of fear and anxiety. That's the 12th chapter. We all know about dark days. And those are the days that teach us the most about prayer. Hear the word of the Lord as it comes to us from Acts chapter 12. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, this was during the festival of unleavened bread. But when he had seized him, he put him in prison, and he handed him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. The word of the Lord. Holy God, we join those who throughout the ages have bowed their heads and prayed to you. And at this moment, we pray for an understanding from your holy word. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. The text begins by saying that King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. This Herod was the grandson of Herod the Great, who slaughtered the babies of Bethlehem. He was the nephew of Herod Antipas, who tried Jesus. And like all of the King Herods before him, he had an insatiable thirst for power and would do anything to get more of it. So as he saw the church growing so dramatically, and he witnessed how much anxiety that brought to the Jewish religious establishment, he had the disciple James, the brother of John, arrested. His polls started to go up. So then he executed the disciple James. The polls went up even more. He saw how much this pleased the people. So then he arrested Peter. The next thing we're told is that the church prayed fervently for Peter while he was in prison. Now, here's the tension of the text. Don't you think the church prayed fervently for James while he was in prison? <laughs> and still he was executed. So what is the church praying when they pray for Peter, who's now in prison after James? This time are they praying Oh, God, please make Peter courageous in his hour of death? Or, or are they still praying, 
dear God, please get Peter out of jail. It's not the same prayer. Someone becomes sick, very, very sick. And the friends and the loved ones of this person will ask their pastor, how should I be praying now? Do I still pray for healing? Or do I pray for comfort in these last hours? I think the subtext of that prayer is, I don't want to make a mistake. I want to believe that prayer works, but I'm afraid I'm not doing it right. What if she dies in spite of my prayers? What does that say about prayer? What does it say about my faith? What does it say about God? This subtext of anxiety we have about prayer, I think is fundamentally an effort to do spin control on behalf of God. We want to make sure that no matter what happens, God comes out looking okay. So we want prayer to be safe. But there is no safe way to pray. Because in prayer, you're entering into the presence of Almighty God. How do you do that safely? It's not that God might spite you. It's that you are called to bring honesty before God. How else can you approach God? And the honest, fervent desire of the heart has always got to be brought before God. It's interesting how many times when Jesus is teaching about prayer, he uses imperatives. Ask, seek, knock. Even in his own prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Or the parables he teaches about prayer involve a widow who just keeps knocking on the door of the judge until she's irritating enough that she finally gets justice. Just keep knocking, imperative, keep at it, keep at it. And we're told all of this not because the expectation is that we will receive everything we ask for. I'm sure they prayed for James's release. Sometimes in spite of the fervent prayers of the church, the loved one still dies. Of course, we know that. We've been there. Sometimes James is still executed. Right. But you can't enter into the presence of God with anything less than total honesty. And nothing is more honest than the fervent desires that rise from the soul. Question is often asked, does prayer really change things? And I think the response to that is a resounding yes. But what prayer changes most of all is the person doing the praying. Because by entering into the presence of God, you as the creature are once again back before the creator. We've spent so much of our days having the image of God distorted among us that when we return to God, we remember who we are and whose we are, and that changes us back to who we were created to be from the very beginning. That's what prayer changes. Peter was changed by his prayers. As we continue to read through the 12th chapter, God has decided to bring Peter out of jail. 
So the Lord sends an angel into the jail cell to release Peter. This is the third time now that Peter's been in jail by the time we get to the 12th chapter. We're told that an angel appears in his midst. In the midst of all of this imprisonment, Peter has two chains wrapped around him. He is sleeping between two guards who are on either side of him. There are another two guards outside of the jail doors. When the angel appears, the jail cell is filled with light. <laughs> and the angel can't get Peter to wake up. The, the angel keeps saying, wake up, come on, wake up. I mean, does this read like a man who is worried about dying? He's having a good night's sleep. He's not anxious. Now, why is that? I, I don't think it's because Peter was just sure God was going to release him. He didn't know that. Remember, Peter had spent three years trying to tell Jesus what he had to do, and it never quite worked out for him. But now, filled with the Holy Spirit, I think Peter has learned to express his fervent desires and then to leave them in the hands of a Savior he knew he would never understand except that this Savior in life and death would always be gracious to him. It's the best way to get a good night's sleep. In life and death, we belong to God. Well, after the angel gets Peter out of jail, the first thing that Peter wants to do is to go to the church that's been praying for his release. So he goes up to the home where they're all gathered and praying, and he knocks on the gates and he knocks so long and so loudly that he's disturbing the prayer that's going on inside the house. And the people who are praying get a little irritated about that, so they send the servant to the gate to make this person go away. We're even told her name, which is interesting. We're not giving that many names in Acts, but Rhoda is the servant girl's name. She goes to the gate to see who's there. She opens it. She sees that it's Peter. She leaves him outside, <laughs> runs back into the house, and says to everybody who's praying, Hey, this guy you've been praying to get out of jail, well, he's at the gate. And what do they say? You're out of your mind. That can't be right. Isn't that fascinating? They're all inside praying, please, God, release Peter from jail. He's at the gate saying, hey, I'm right here. And they're inside saying, well, that can't be right. They're more devoted to their prayers than they are to God's response. God is at the gate trying to get in. They're inside praying for God to come in, but can't believe he would. Wouldn't it be the most tragic of ironies if we missed God at the gate because we were more devoted to our prayers to God than we were to God's arrival? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.